Opening consideration. Details. Are we paying attention to details? By observing details with your eyes, these items will store away in your mind and heart's treasure trove for later appreciation. This plays a part in having something to be thankful for each day. Vacations, performances, having the best friend, marriage to your best friend, birth of a child, enjoying a fine beverage. Your deep beyond the surface questions being answered. Yes, you still remember the details of these exciting and often cherished events. Words meaning. An ambassador is a representative, a person who represents a country, speaks for, or advertises a particular organization, group of people, activity, or brand. Chapter 9. The River Pageant At nine in the evening, the whole vast riverfront of the palace was blazing with light. The river itself, as far as the eye could reach citywards, was so thickly covered with watermen's boats and with pleasure barges, all fringed with colored lanterns and gently agitated by the waves, that it resembled a glowing and limitless garden of flowers stirred to soft motion by summer winds. The grand terrace of stone steps leading down to the water, spacious enough to mask the army of a German principality upon, was a picture to see with its ranks of royal halberds in polished armor and its troops of brilliantly costumed servitors flitting up and down and to and fro in the hurry of preparation. Presently, a command was given, and immediately all living creatures vanished from the steps. Now the air was heavy with the hush of suspense and expectancy. As far as one's vision could carry, he might see the myriads of people in the boats rise up and shade their eyes from the glare of lanterns and torches and gaze towards the palace. A file of forty or fifty stage barges drew up to the steps. They were richly gilt and their lofty prows and sterns were elaborately carved. Some of them were decorated with banners and streamers, some with the cloth of gold and arras embroidered with coats of arms, others with silken flags that had numberless little, little silver bells fastened to them, which shook out tiny showers of joyous music whenever the breezes fluttered them. Others of yet higher pretensions, since they belonged to nobles in the prince's immediate service, had their sides picturesquely fenced with shields, gorgeously emblazoned with armory barons. Yes, each state barge was towered by a tender. Besides the roars, these tenders carried each a number of men at arms in glossy helmet and breastplate, and a company of musicians. The advance guard of the expected procession now appeared in the great gateway, a troop of halberds. They were dressed in stripped holes of black and tawny velvet caps 
graced at the sides with silver roses and doublets of murray and blue cloth embroidered on the front and back with the three feathers the princess blazon woven in gold their halberd staves were covered with crimson velvet fastened with gilt nails and ornamented with gold tassels fouling off on the right and left they formed two long lines extending from the gateway of the palace to the water's edge a thick rayed cloth or carpet was then unfolded and laid down between them by attendants in the gold and crimson liveries of the prince this done a florist of trumpets resounded from within a lively prelude arose from the musicians on the water, and two ushers with white wands marched with a slow and stately pace from the portal. They were followed by an officer bearing the civic mace, after whom came another carrying the city sword, then several sergeants of the city guard, in their full accoutrements, and we and with badges on, on their sleeves. Then the Gother king at arms in his tabard, then several knights of the bath, each with a white lace on his sleeve, then their esquires, then the judges in their robes of scarlet and coifs, then the Lord High Chancellor of England in a robe of scarlet, open before and perfect with many ever, then a deputation of aldermen, in their scarlet cloaks, and then the heads of the different civic companies in their robes of state. Now came twelve French gentlemen in splendid halberds, consisting of points of white damask barred with gold, <laughs> short mantles of crimson, velvet lined with violet taffeta, uh, T-A-F-F-E-T-A, T-A-F-F-E-T-A. Taffeta, and carnation colored halts de causes, and took their way down the steps. They were of the suite of the French ambassador, and were followed by twelve cavaliers of the suite of the Spanish ambassador, clothed in black velvet, unrelieved by any ornament. Following these came several great English nobles with their attendants. There was a flourish of trumpets within, and the prince's uncle, the future great Duke of Somerset emerged from the gateway, arrayed in a doublet of black cloth of gold and a cloak of crimson satin flowered with gold, and reband with nets of silver, or ribanded with bet nets of silver. He turned, doffed his plum cat, cap, bent his body in a low reverence, and began to step backwards, bowing at each step. A prolonged trumpet blast followed and a proclamation. Way for the high and mighty, the Lord Edward, Prince of Wales. High aloft on the palace walls, a long line of red tongues of flame leapt forth with a thunder crash. The mass whirled on the river burst into a mighty roar of welcome. And Tom Canty, the cause and hero of it all stepped into view and slightly bowed his princely head. He was magnificently habited in a doublet of white satin with a front piece of purple cloth of tissue powdered with diamonds and edged with ermine. 
Over this, he wore a mantle of white cloth of gold, pounced with the triple feather crest, lined with blue satin, set with pearls and precious stones, and fastened with a clasp of brilliance. About his neck hung the order of the garter and several princely foreign orders, and wherever light fell upon him, jewels responded with a blinding flash. Old Tom Canty, born in a hovel, bred in the gutters of London, familiar with rags and dirt and misery, what a spectacle is this! People to Remember how many people do you know smiling details about? Bet you can count more than 10. A good friend is more comfortable than a couch. Allow me to share a thought. Mark Twain raised public awareness about animal cruelty and exploitation. Dear Sir, in a letter, I believe I am not interested to know whether vivisection produces results that are profitable to the human race or doesn't. To know that the results are profitable to the race would not remove my hostility to it. The pains which it inflicts upon unconsenting animals is the basis of my enmity towards it and it is to me sufficient justification of the enmity without looking further. It is so distinctly a matter of feeling with me, and is so strong and so deeply rooted in my make and constitution, that I am sure I could not even see a vivisector vivisected with anything more than a sort of qualified satisfaction. I do not say I should not go and look on. I only mean that I should almost surely fail to get out of it the degree of contentment which it ought, of course, to be expected to furnish. I find some very impressive paragraphs in a paper which was read before the National Individualist Club, 1898, by a medical man. I have read and reread these paragraphs with always augmenting astonishment and have tried to understand why it should be considered a kind of credit and a handsome thing to belong to a human race that has vivisectors in it. And I have also tried to imagine what would become of a race if it had to be saved by my practicing vivisection on the French plan. Let me quote, Vivisectors possess a drug called cure, which, given to an animal, effectually prevents any struggle or cry. A horrible feature of cure is that it has no anesthetic effect, but, on the contrary, it intensifies the sensibility to pain. The animal is perfectly conscious, suffers doubly, and is able to make no sign. Claude Bernard, the notorious French vivisector, thus describes the effect of Curé, the apparent corpse before us hears and distinguishes all that is done. In this motionless body, behind that glazing eye, sensitiveness and intelligence persist in their entirety. 
The apparent insensibility it produces is accompanied by the most atrocious suffering the mind of man can conceive. It has been freely admitted by vivisectors that they have used curry along in the most horrible experiments that these admissions are to be found multiplied to any extent in the report of the Royal Commission. And though it is illegal at the present day to dispense with anesthetics, uh, experiments are going on in which curry is the real means of keeping the animals quiet while a pretense is made of anesthesia them. Yes. I am not desirous of shocking you by reciting the atrocities of vivisection, but since the apologists tried to deceive the public by vague statements that vivisectors would not and do not perpetrate cruelty, I wish to say sufficient to disprove their assertions. There is unfortunately abundant evidence that innumerable experiments of the following character have been performed on sensitive animals. They have been boiled, baked, scalded, burnt with turpentine, frozen, cauterized. They have been partly drowned and brought back to consciousness to have the process repeated. They have been cut open and mangled in every part of the body and have been kept alive in a mutilated state for experiments lasting days or weeks. If I wish, I could pile up mountains of evidence to be found in the publications of psychologists and in the report of the Royal Commission. Here are some of the Dr. Drash in 1889 Du Bois Raymond's archives. The frogs cauterized, cauterized or not are prepared in the following manner. The animal is placed on its back on a piece of cork fastened by a needle through the end of the nose. The lower jaw drawn back and also fastened with pins. Then the mucous membrane is cut away in a circular form. The right eyeball, which protrudes into the back of the throat, is seized, and the copiously bleeding vessels are tied. Next, a tent hook is introduced into the cavity of the eye, drawing out the muscles and optic nerves, which are also secured by a ligature. The eyeball is then split with a needle near the point where the optic nerve enters. A circular piece cut away from the serotic and the crystalline lens, etc., removed from the eyeball. I may remark that my experiments lasted a whole year, and I have therefore tried frogs at all seasons. He calmly gives directions for keeping the animals still. If the frog is not curized, the sciatic and the Cura nerves are cut through. It is, however, sufficient to fasten the head completely to the cork to immobilize the animal. I could quote still more shameful vivisection records from this paper, but I lack the stomach for it. Very truly yours, Mark Twain. A letter to the London Anti-Vivisection Society, 
May 26, 1899. This concludes the Perceptive Reader's reading commentary on Mark Twain's Chapter 9.